Hi everyone, Noah here with another bonus episode of the podcast. This time out, we have the recording of the forum we held this week with Corinne Wicks and her collaborators from Willing Company. The topic at hand, crafting immersive, specifically the three-part series of columns that Corinne wrote for us here at No Persinium. You'll find links in the show notes. These columns were framed as discussions with her collaborators, and in many ways, this is the fourth part of the series, uh, following up on and expanding and diving a little deeper on some of the ideas held within, and also incorporating uh, some of the feedback from those who are in attendance at the forum. For those of you who want to know more about what Willing Company is up to, they have a piece coming up soon called Litmus, which they're actually doing a press preview of uh, on the evening when I release this. And we'll have more about Litmus soon. Uh, it gets mentioned a few times in this recording, so I'm not giving away anything you're not going to know about. You also might be coming to this after you've experienced Litmus. If you are, welcome, welcome to the No Persinium uh, universe, and we hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as we all enjoyed having it. Okay, it's 5.05 on the West Coast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Noah Nelson, uh, the publisher of No Persinium. Uh, tonight, uh, this is the first time we've done uh, something exactly like this. Uh, it is an experiment for us, and uh, we hope you like it. Uh, some number, I, some, gosh, uh, months ago, uh, <laughs> Corinne, I put you on. Uh, months ago, uh, Corinne and I were talking about uh, her doing like either a piece or a series of columns about her process. Um, you know, for those who may not know, I got to see uh, Corinne's uh, I Love You So Much Squeeze Me to Death at Highways a couple of years ago. I was super impressed by it, just really loved her approach to taking a traditional kind of dance concert that you would have in the dance world and blowing it up, deconstructing it, reconfiguring it so that it was something that was accessible in the immersive sense. There was participation. There was a real consideration of the audience's comfort around participation, but it also still managed to really anchor the performances. Um, she won. Yes, one, we did this uh, with After Hours Theater Company, sponsored and put on, provided everything for this immersive invitational that was done here in LA back in 2019. And Corinne and Sam and the other uh, collaborators created this amazing piece called Casting that was a satirical look at the casting process uh, that anyone in Los Angeles knows all too well. Uh, they did this in 72 hours, and it was an absolute delight, and I was so with it that we programmed it into the infamously ill-fated 2020 Here Summit and Festival. It is my great hope that when we finally get to do the festival, we will in fact be able to show everyone why we were so excited about that. So that is the frame for why I would be super excited about having her talk about her process. And um, 
yeah, that's that's the big frame. Uh, I think I've told everyone how the night's going to work already. And uh, Corinne, um, I'm going to unspotlight myself and I'm going to start pulling your collaborators in. Thanks, Noah. Um, so uh, as Noah said, my name is Corinne. Um, I've been creating immersive dance for, I mean, I would say like that's been the focus of my arts practice for five years now. Um, and this past year, I've, I've formed an immersive production company that uh, better illustrates the way I create work, which is very collaboratively. Um, and so with me tonight, I have some of the incredibly talented people that I work with. Um, and I'm gonna let them introduce themselves. Uh, let me throw it to Alex and Hannah first. Hi, my name is Alex Lau. Uh, I'm a musician, uh, composer, performer, and sound artist. Uh, I've been working with Corinne for about five years now, right? Um, Since the beginning. <laughs> uh, I do a lot of work with um, experimental and immersive technologies, uh, using a lot of gestural sensors, um, embedded speakers and spaces, uh, and uh, interactive sound installation work. I'm Hannah. I am a vocalist, lyricist, songwriter, performer, uh, my background is in classical and jazz, but I've done a lot of um, modern contemporary performance as well. And I've been really excited about working with Corinne. Uh, we actually started working together for casting, which was a great introduction into the work we all do together. Um, by day, I work in arts administration, and my focus is really in the civic engagement side of the arts. Awesome guys. Let's, uh, why don't I throw it to Titus and Morgan next. Great. Uh, my name is Titus. Uh, I am a props and puppets master. Uh, I also dabble in scenic as well as the majority of the video and camera work um, when I'm working with Corinne. Um, based, most of my stuff I do is based in film, but I also dabble in theater and dance um, and smaller projects. And I met this wonderful group of people through my partner, Morgan. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Morgan Embry. I'm lighting video designer, also a dancer, choreographer. Um, I got started with Corinne in 2016, first first project we worked on together. I'm just now realizing that it's it's been a minute now since we got started. We've, <laughs> we've all been in this together for a little bit now. Um, yeah, I do work in theater and dance, um, and I'm also a lighting video uh, designer for live music and touring. Oh, and uh, last but not least, Sam, let's hear from you. Uh, hey, yeah, I'm Sam Alper. Uh, I am a writer. Um, uh, by day, I work mostly as a writer's assistant in TV, um, but my background is in uh, immersive feeling experimental theater. Um, I spent about four years working at La Mama in, the, in New York and um, put up some of my own work there and did a lot of stuff where that had audience participation. Um, uh, Karina and I are married. And as she, she started making more and more work like this, uh, especially uh, starting in grad school, um, it was, I just was lucky enough to be asked to uh, participate, which has been very fun. Very forcefully asked. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, the, these I sort of think of as my as my core collaborators in that most of the work I've done since I've been in Los Angeles, or really all of the work I've done, we've we've worked on together in in some way or another. And so um, if you read the Crafting Immersive series, then you probably recognize these names. Um, and, and they are sort of the core collaborators in Willing Company as well. So um, moving past introductions, um, I tend to think of things in like a sort of process oriented way. So um, I'll just talk a little bit about how the, the sort of structure of the column came about in terms of selecting these three topics. Um, and so as Noah and I were talking about this series and, and talking about ways to delineate topics, um, I started thinking for myself about how I create immersive work. Um, and I identified two approaches that I think pretty consistently over the last five years I've used when approaching immersive work. Um, and I would say it's either a very sort of formal approach where I'm interested in the immersivity. So what we can do to activate the audience within a piece, um, or it's a more sort of theme-based work where we're exploring, um, you know, whether it's like a psychological idea or with casting, we were kind of doing this farce on a casting call. Um, and so from there, from either of these two perspectives, it kind of balloons out from there. Um, I'm very lucky in that by working collaboratively, I can, and because I've worked with these people for long enough, I can often come to them with like a really tiny seed of an idea that is like, just like barely germinated. And then through conversations um, with each of them, uh, things sort of grow and for lack of a less gross word, metastasize into something that's sort of fully realized. Um, and so a big part of that tends to center physicality. And I mean, I think that's natural because I'm a dance artist, but I'm also lucky that a lot of my collaborators, even though they might not, you know, only identify as a dancer, um, physicality is really central to their process. So for example, Alex in, in his work with experimental sound and music uh, often is really centering uh, the body in the way he's creating sound. So Alex, would you just want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. Uh, the very first interaction I think we had, uh, you had come to me to compose music for one of your pieces. And I said, I don't, I don't really write music for dance in the traditional way. Like I'll, I'll be glad to perform for you or with you. Um, and so one of the things that I requested is that was, I, I want you to choreograph movement uh, to some degree and I'll perform the work. And so uh, a good chunk of the piece that we did was like you giving me movements and then me using my gestural controllers with these compositional aspects to create the sound. And it, it to me, like that's that's what became a really interesting kind of uh, you know nexus of collaboration, where it, it was this idea of like you tell me movements, I'll take the movements and then work on the the sound, and that things became necessarily uh, intertwined, right? It wasn't like 
here's this abstract concept about happy or sad or mm -hmm. it was it was this very physical um sort of thing and so yeah i mean that's that's sort of been the the genesis and that's kind of been the basis of all of our collaborations of like what does it mean to really move in a space and how can we have movement directly interact and affect the sound yeah and i think in you know, for example, I love you so much, squeeze me to death that also like incorporated the audience in terms of creating movement, uh, pardon me, music and video installations that the audience was activating. So like expanding that sort of like physicalization of sound one step further. Right. And then with Litmus, uh, without spoiling too much, um, now it, it becomes this idea of one audience member directly injecting text that becomes the real focal point of the main improvisations in a way that it's, it's a little bit abstracted, but that like they're the text that they enter into the website and the responses that they give are the things that become the basis of the sound and the sequencers that sort of generate these vocal phonemes. Um, so yeah, it become it's, it's this interesting sort of like thinking about how interaction, movement, music, sound, movement, all of these things become um sort of intertwined in this uh in this space at the same time yeah um i'm gonna throw it to another collaborator in one second but before i do um one thing alex has always been really good at keeping me honest with you know just in terms of like talking about this notion of interaction between audience and media and sound and dance um is that it, sh it should always be purposeful. So when you brought up litmus and there's an interactive sound component in litmus that it, as he said, is completely driven by audience interaction, audience input. Um, and you know, there's definitely been times in our collaborations and I think this can be really tempting for immersive makers when you know, you're, you're challenged in immersive work or I see a challenge in immersive work as integrating so many different elements. You know, a lot of different people have written about, you know, integrating scenic design, sound, lighting, movement, text, like all of these things coming together in immersive. Um, and so sometimes it can be really tempting to just kind of be like, oh yeah, and then they'll do this and it'll affect the sound algorithmically. Um, and, and it, you know, we'll just kind of fudge it. And it can be really, really tempting to do that. And one of the great things about working with Alex and how rigorous he has always been with his practice in terms of immersive or experimental interactive sound is, is you're very good at being like, well, no, that's stupid, you know? Or like, no, come on, we're cheating. <laughs> it, it becomes a thing where, I mean, when you work with, you know, digital technologies in particular, it's easy to be like, oh, this is an, to call it an interactive thing. And like you enter your name and then we take those letters and we quantize them to pitches and that makes some sequence. And yeah, just like, at what point can you hear that? At what point can you know that there is genuine interaction? And, you know, when you start quantizing things, you start like filtering the data, it becomes this sort of, I don't know, insincere relationship, right? Like it's, it's so filtered, it's so quantized that like, what are you really affecting? And so, um, yeah, I mean, in the past, like we've had these things where it's like when the audience walks near, walks near uh, the, um, the prop sets, it activates the sound installation. And the question is, what if they don't walk near there? It's like, it doesn't get activated. <laughs> there isn't, you know, like having these like non fail safes in place um, 
And yeah, just like trying to make it uh, purposeful, intentional and necessitate the interaction where it's like, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen, right? Like you can't force everything with this kind of immersive thing. If people don't discover it, they don't discover it. That's part of the nature of discovery. Uh, so yeah, no, I do agree. I think it's 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 a really important aspect of um, the the sort of freedom that you've given me in this work is like we'll make these things and like if it doesn't go the way that we planned, that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna bounce it over to Morgan, who I think also brings a really great perspective to to immersive work in general, but also to the kind of really physical centered immersive work that we create because she comes to it not only as someone from the technical side of things, she's she's a lighting designer, she works with projection design, interactive lighting and projection, but she's also a performer. Um, and so I think it's kind, kind of rare, especially in the dance world to have, you know, these, these two expertise um, and to be able to approach the work from these two perspectives. So Morgan, if you just wanna jump in with, with anything that comes to mind. Um, well, it was, it's really interesting because we do very much so as a group have this, uh, we don't have this overprotectiveness of the work and of the show as far as like, we have to figure out a way for our audience to experience all of the things that we've put into it. Like we're not like that. But at the same time, we do think about all the possible ways we need to go about it in order to make sure that our audience and our participants experience the core of what we want them to experience. So a lot of thought goes into it because we want them to walk away and get the point or a generally because it's immersive, you know? So like the point is very personal and it's not uh, like in quotes, the point. Um, but yes, there's Easter eggs and you want there to be Easter eggs and you want to create this atmosphere that allows it to be a very uh, personal experience for each person who goes through and very individualized. And that's the beauty of immersive work. But at the same time, not everyone is going to go touch every single thing and not everyone is going to jump on stage and become one of the key parts of the experience, you know? Um, so it's planning it in a way that it's approachable for any level of um, participation. Um, and that's something that we're very conscious of. Um, and that's something I'm especially conscious of when I'm creating the lighting, because what's really cool about lighting is that I can influence the overall atmosphere and the overall emotional tone of the room from the moment people walk in. And that's one of our like first conversations that Corinne and I have is what is what does it feel like? What is what is this piece? What does this work feel like? Um, and that's a question we focus on more than what color is it or how bright is it or like any of these other things that that all works itself out once we know how it feels to us, how it feels to the performers and how it feels to the audience um, and audience participants. Um, Cause that's, that's really at the end of the, at the end of the day, that is the whole point of, of the lighting from, from my point of view mm -hmm. is um, 
giving the the tone the shell that the work exists in um, and soundscape plays a lot into that as well um, I think that is my main spiel <laughs> yeah um, I have I have two things to sort of uh, highlight in what you just said you know this this idea of like lighting as being very sort of um, related to feeling. Um, and again, we keep teasing this piece, but it's the piece we have coming up next, which is litmus. And we're asking the audience to essentially create the lighting design for, for parts of the piece. Um, but we approach those, that interaction by asking questions about how you're feeling and, and questions about a journey you want to go on. Um, but the second thing I wanted to highlight is you sort of talked about this idea of, of sound and light working in tandem to create these kind of affect affects in the space. Um, and I think one thing that Hannah has has done an incredible job of bringing to, to the work we've done is uh, creating soundscapes that are, I mean, beautiful in terms of their vocal composition and their uh, general composition but also you're really good at, at making them kinetic. And, and so I think, for example, in Yule, where we, we created this, this piece that was essentially a, a ritual, um, it, it kind of encouraged physicalization and, and the kind of participation we were looking for from the audience. Um, if, you, if you wanted to talk about that a bit, Hannah, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll just first start by jumping back a bit to um, something Morgan had said, right? Like throughout these performances and really these worlds that we're creating, we're planting these Easter eggs. And in a way, um, the sound, the lighting, everything is, is mapping out, even though these are all personal experiences, um, it's mapping out this trajectory of, you know, of, of really what we put into and what we envision these um, experiences to be. So, uh, you know, growing up as a vocalist, being a choir nerd, something that was, I mean, that's the big joke, right? Where we're very, uh, if you tell us to read the sheet music, we're like, what? But, um, you know, something I found in our process uh, in the way that, you know, Corinne and I work together, she'll say things like, oh, like in this part, you know, kind of slow it down, break it down, like, um, like a motor is running out of its juice and that clicks with me. So emotion and feeling is something that makes sense to me. Um, and, you know, text painting and thinking about how I can convey emotion and story without text has been a very, very fun exploration with the work we've done. Um, so jumping back to Yule, I'm, the sounds that I wanted to use in that particular performance, right? Like, like Corinne said, there is this ritualistic aspect to the performance and in really, you know, it portraying this story of this wild hunt, the things that I tried to focus on are like, what does a hunt sound like, right? Like what, what kind of, um, what kind of scene do we want to paint? And, um, you know, I thought a lot of like using yells and using grunts and like screeches and, and you know, sounds of these nature that really, uh, yeah, paint this scene. So um, yeah, I, I think in that sense, the sound and the lighting are very, very similar um, in guiding this, 
experiences. And and part of the like kinetic energy that I think that you get from some of this. Um, so obviously we work together. <laughs> um, but part of that is like when we record it, I I kind of demand that it's done in a live way. Like mm-hmm. like we'll do a lot of studio sessions, but it'll be like do it live, like record like thirty minutes worth of like something and like. And there's a lot of like liveness that we try to capture in these and sort of like being more of the engineer and producer in the session. Like Hannah's very open to like, okay, like we'll do these like live looping or like, you know, trying to get these long takes and like forcing it to be, you know, these long takes, these live looping sessions, like these sort of big um, experiences makes it feel more kinetic because it's not just like, okay, we're taking five seconds of something and I'm editing it together. It's like, we're really trying to get Hannah's performance Mm -hmm. and performance by its nature is kinetic, right? Like there is movement, there's energy involved and like that arc and that trajectory is inherent in the sound. And that's something that we do in these sessions is like, we're just, we just agree that like, we have to get it done in these kinds of ways that makes it feel live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think I think that's really going to come across in litmus, especially. But um, we're we're ten minutes into this this first topic, and I know we wanted to sort of open up to audience as well. Um, Noah, do you want to facilitate that? Oh, oh, I don't know if we can hear you, Noah. I hit the wrong button. Hit stop video on my video. I suppose to start. Uh, yeah. Um, if anyone's got something, uh, go ahead and either, you know, feel free to like use the emoji to raise your hand or also if you turn your video on or unmute your mic, uh, we'll know that you that you want to chime in and I'll be the one to call on you. Uh, you can also drop something in the chat if you so choose. Otherwise, um, you know, I think we can continue on in this vein until someone's got something. Um, you know, something here that I think we just touched on is, is this idea of liveness and how that interacts with, uh, the physicality and this, this, this sense of taking recorded materials in order to support liveness when that liveness is emerging in the moment and has, has to be able to, or have the illusion of reacting to the unexpected, meaning the audience. So I guess that's my question. Like how, like, the, the, I, I'm, I'm interested in you guys exploring this vein right here. Uh, I don't know if that's something that, that Corinne, you could kind of talk to about, yeah. you know, as you're sort of coordinating all these efforts together in order to, to how the audience comes in to this, this sort of frame you've built for them. Because we talked a lot about the frame and now I'm kind of curious about how the audience is, is injected in there. Sure. Um... So the way that I think about audience interaction, I think you could think about it in terms of layers or categories. So um, the two layers that I am I'm usually thinking about first are, are the choreographic layer. So this idea of like, we, we work in a choreographic language, we have dancers in the space. And for most of our work, uh, there are portions that are, you know, more traditional presentational concert dance where you're focused on the performers. And then there are parts that are collaborative with the audience um, where the audience is 
I, I feel like expected to is a strong term, but invited to engage with the dancers and move um, and sort of explore this physical language that we'll create for the piece. And there's varying degrees of um, complexity in that. So um, for example, I would argue that uh, the piece we did for the Halogen Project's Yule Party in 2019 was relatively simple. We brought the audience into the space, we set them in a position and we asked them to create a beat where they were doing two stomps and a beat on the chest. And that was sort of the percussive underlying of uh, a vocal performance that Hannah performed live. And then there was choreography set to that. Um, so that was a relatively physical element or um, choreography for the audience, if you will. And there is this element of you don't know if the audience is going to stay there. You don't know <laughs> if, you know, someone's going to get shy and dip. Um, and for the most part, in terms of planning for that, um, pretty much every immersive production I've done, whether it's my own or, or pieces I've done for other companies, there's some like very basic level of like, there's someone in the space keeping eyes on people in case someone does something really crazy. To be honest, that's never happened to me. Um, but there's always someone there with like eyes on the performance space. More often than not, the sort of randomness that you're going to deal with is is someone sort of just leaving. You know, either you know deciding that they don't want to participate or that I don't know they get distracted and go talk to their friend or something. And in some pieces, for example, Yule, that was fine. We had enough people in the space where if one person left it didn't really change the, the dynamics of the performance. Um, in other pieces, like I Love You So Much, Squeeze Me to Death, which was all about codependency, there were ways to react to that, which fit within the, the theme of the performance. Um, you know, the, the performers in that work were coached to develop a codependent relationship relationship with the audience like as a whole, but also with each interaction. And so if someone kind of abandoned them, you can you can respond to that as, as having that be really crushing, as having that affect you. Um, and it's it's not gonna break the piece. Um, I wonder if you can actually dial in on, on this concept a little bit and also maybe how it applied to Yule, because like in Yule, you handed over the percussion to mm -hmm. the audience and for both the, the dancers and for, for Hannah, for you, for you singing, you know, is there a bit of a, a you know, the, the microscopic details of, of that, like, you know, are, are, are you, are you allowing for the plasticity of, Oh, these people can't keep a beat. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta, we gotta perform to the beat that they're not keeping, right? Like, is is that, or do you have a ringer in there, someone who knows how to like you keep beat going on? And I'll let you jump in first. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I actually think if I remember correctly, the way I started it off, you know, I actually very, very subtly actually started that beat before the audience did so it's there so regardless of because you know you watch you watch the videos you listen back on the audio and it the beat does shift uh the clapping does shift and um i find that very interesting but there is always that that beat that um in the loop that continued and kept the the time 
Yeah, I think also for that particular performance, I mean, in the choreography, dancers went back to the audience and did did the beat with them occasionally throughout the choreography to kind of reestablish. Um, I mean, I think that was also a very specific performance in that Yule in 2019 was was sort of designed as a celebration for the immersive community so we we kind of had a sense of who was going to be there and that they were going to be like super gung-ho um i think if it had been a different setting we might have had some ringers in the audience um but also i think there can be some some interesting things that happen when we do allow for that plasticity with the audience i'm right. gonna let the audience jump in. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pull, I'm gonna pull Janet in. Uh, Janet, go ahead and unmute yourself, and I'm gonna spotlight you. Oh my gosh, spotlighting me. What an honor. Um, I am just curious. I'm like really interested in this idea of like the movement of the audience and how they're how they interact with the piece. Um, and I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more about how you uh Think about because I guess when I'm always making immersive, I'm thinking about like what it, what are they taking away with them? What is the experience like? What what is it gifting them? So I'm curious about how you how you go about thinking about like what is the gift you want to give to the audience and how does that integrate into uh, how they play and how they move through the experience? Yeah, I think so. I touched on this a little bit in the column, but one of one of the sort of paths I took to immersive was was simply from being frustrated that more people were interested in concert dance. Um, and so the first, you know, like large scale immersive production I saw was Sleep No More. And uh, I took my sister and my sister is incredibly supportive, but would not go see a dance concert if I didn't take her. <laughs> and she went back the next week, like she was so gung ho and excited about it. And so and having conversations with her about like, well, why was this so exciting to you? Um, some of the things that emerged in those conversations and that were um, also things I found in my research and in my graduate studies was that it, it, it tunes you into a different way of experiencing performance. Um, we, we live in a culture in which there, there's a there's a lot of expectation in sort of traditional or orthodox performance, if you prefer, um, to sort of like read the signs. Like we we learn we learn Shakespeare by reading Shakespeare in English class, and then you know we sit down and break down iambic pentameter and you know all of the different literary devices. Um, and so people from this education tend to approach performance as like, okay, I got to sit down and like figure it out. And it's, it's hard to do that with dance if you don't have a background in dance. Um, I think specifically in a culture like North America where we're not like, you know, we don't really support the arts and especially not dance. And so when you activate audiences with movement, I feel like they become less nervous about, am I getting it or not? Because suddenly you're, you're embodied and you're in it. And so when I think about how I'm moving the audience in a work, it, it, de it depends on what the work is about. So for example, we keep coming back to Yule and, and with Yule, 
really what I was interested in doing with that piece was creating a sense of ritual and, and this idea of creating shared music and, you know, also percussive music. Like there's a very, very rich history in like human development um, in terms of, of that being an experience that creates a sense of doing something together as a group. Um, in, in my piece, Keepsake, there's, there's a section that's, that's literally a prom. And so the audience interaction in that was literally slow dancing with the dancers. And we went between, you know, just like a very like high school prom slow dance to then there being more choreographed moments where the dancers are moving around them and changing partners, but then sort of coming back to this very uh, relatable experience that we, a lot of people can, can sort of tap into their own experience to then draw some kind of meaning from. And, you know, of course, not everybody's going to be able to tap into that experience. Like I create work based on my experience. I don't know who's walking into the room, but I'm usually trying to, I usually approach physical interaction with some kind of anchor in terms of this is, this is how we're physical in the world. <laughs> so. Can I touch off of that a little bit? Oh yeah, go for it, go for it. And then, I'm, uh, and then after that, I'm gonna bring Rachel up. I'll make it quick. Um, I just, the beauty of um, immersive work is that you can engage people in more than just one way. And that's why it's different from concert performance in that, I mean, people have different ways of learning. People have different ways of engaging with their environments. And immersive work allows them to, ex allows people to explore more than just sitting still and watching. So me personally, it's very attractive to me as a dancer because I natively interact with my world in a more kinesthetic, tactile way. Um, and so even for me, watching a dance performance, it's not always as satisfying as being able to be in it in some way, even if I'm not a performer or um, as, a, as a lighting designer and being able to be able to explore the environment and see where the lights are and like really get into it and see the science behind it, that's really satisfying for me. And that's things that you can get from, from immersive work. Um, but uh, also touching on what Corinne said, um, a lot of her work and our work as Will and Company touches on senses of nostalgia um, of the familiar. Um, and that gives everyone in the room a sense of common ground because there's something relatable to it. And I think um, that in and of itself is the, is the gift, at least our immersive work gives, is a sense of common ground with everyone in the room if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I think maybe when we come back into the, the next section, which is going to be about onboarding, I think talking, breaking down some of the sensory stuff uh, that you were just touching on and these different approaches, might, it may be great to circle back in there. Right now, I'm going to bring Rachel up into the spotlight. Hello. Hi, everybody. Um, first, just thank you for doing this discussion. I'm learning a lot, and I really appreciate hearing about the work you're doing. Um, I was just wondering if you could explain a little more about the context in which the performances occur. Uh, there was mention of like people coming and going or like people talking to somebody else. Um, so I was just wondering, I guess in my mind, I was thinking very like you enter and you don't leave kind of situation. So, so if you could just explain that a little more, I'd appreciate it. Sure. Um, so 
<laughs> I'm trying to think of like the fastest, easiest way to, to answer this. Um, we have done pieces that are more traditional and that they kind of stand alone as a quote unquote evening length work um, where there is a quote unquote performance space, performance world that the audience enters and are quote unquote expected to stay in for the duration of the performance. Um, where I was talking about entering and exiting, um, that has more to do with how audience react to invitations for, from performers. Um, so there's definitely been situations in the performances we've produced where a performer has extended an invitation to an audience member to participate physically and they have, you know, said no. Um, and so that's, what I was referring to in terms of people kind of stepping out. But there's also been performances we've done um, and, and the Yule piece we keep coming back to is a great example of this where it was kind of part of a larger party. And so the performance happened in one space within the party and people could come and go from that space. Um, we've also done um, digitally based work uh, we did a live stream this past October, which I wouldn't necessarily put in the immersive label per se, but it had elements of liveness, um, or not elements of liveness, it was live and highlighted liveness. Um, and then some of the work we're doing now, because it's still very hard to, to do live performance is, is more on the virtual digital, uh, in the virtual digital space where you have less awareness and control over how present the audience is, what they're doing. Um, and so you kind of have to think about that when you're making it, I suppose. Yeah. I think what's fun is like thinking back to uh, both, I love you so much, uh, Squeezing to Death, the first performance and um, casting, there's this element of the second you walk in the door, you're in the performance. Mm -hmm. You know it, right? Like you, like there's this lovely concept of like not knowing that like the performance has begun the moment you're in the space. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I, those are so magical to me. Like the, when, cause I love watching the audience and when it dawns on them, they're like, Oh, we're five minutes into this, and I have I have not been paying attention. <laughs> like you know, like when when they're like, oh, we're like we're way in into this performance already. And so part of the, I think the fun with some of these projects is playing with that very expectation of like, when does it start? When what you know, like you're in the space. Like does it start then? You know what like, and and when we have these sort of like pre-installations set up where the dancers are already out or the moment you get in, like you're being, you know, evaluated with casting, like just the concept of like the moment you're in the space, that's when it starts, you know, like that's the performance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's like a great segue into the topic of onboarding as well. Um, and uh, I think uh, a great, a great person to sort of get us into that topic um, is Sam. So a lot of, of what we've talked about so far has to do with this idea of, of you know, activating audiences with affect and, and with, um, you know, maybe, maybe less direct instructions. Um, and 
where Sam is really great at coming from a theater background is, is he's always coming or often coming in with the opposite perspective where he's like, no, we, we need to tell people what to do. Like you can't just throw them in the space. And me coming from like more of a dance background, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like put them in there. Let's see what happens. Um, so Sam, if you want to dive in a little bit just with your thoughts. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I would say like broadly speaking, that's sort of our positions is you coming from concert dance, wanting to make immersive work that is more broadly readable, but still having that dance background where there's such an emphasis on experience, the aesthetic, physical, you know, fact of it and take what you will. And yeah, I'm coming from theater and specifically from a kind of experimental theater and relationship to performance art for when from when I was making theater work before I sort of uh, switched over that um, it's not just telling them what to do or telling them what's going on but it's chasing uh, uh, real actions um, which is something I think of in terms of performance art that like you know, uh, Ivo Dimchev, who I love, like once did a show at La Mama where he just actually drew his blood. And, and I guess that's what I mean. I don't mean like every show you should actually draw your blood, but I do think to me, it's about balancing the equation. If you're asking the audience to interact, what is the real thing you're really doing? What's the real position you're staking or way that you are making the first move? You have to break the ice in some way. You have to be like, you're here. And here's what's really occurring so that there's something worth reacting to. I guess that's it. You know, it's like, I feel like um, uh, an easy mistake to make with immersive work. And sometimes this will happen in pieces that didn't quite figure out how to navigate it. It, it feels like it didn't earn it from you. You know what I mean? They'll, it'll be a piece that'll be like, tell me your darkest secret or like blah, blah, blah. And um, you have to create a relationship of trust. And and this might just come from my personality, but I believe the best way to do that is to like get, put yourself out there, maybe even fall on your face or do something vulnerable and have it feel actual, even if it's in the context of performance. And that's where, to me, that's where the director dress is so important because a lot of why I want to tell the audience things is, is, is that what I want to do is be explicit that like, I know it's a show, but really, and then give them somewhere to go from that. In, a, in what feels like a social interaction, essentially. Yeah, that's my whole thing. I'm like, I just want it to feel like a social or another, like I did a show once um, before I was working with Corinne where every night we gave away hundred dollars cash that was sitting on a table the whole time. And certain things the audience could do would make us, you know, kind of decide maybe, maybe you'll get the cash. Um, and I want that feeling and everything. I want every show to have the audience, if it's immersive or interactive, to feel like there's, stakes not maybe necessarily money but this show might actually do something weird uh yeah i mean if you like that what i'm talking about just look up ivo dimchev and read about some of his work he doesn't tour anymore uh he used to teach performance art in berlin it doesn't anymore but um the i my whole theater life changed when i saw a show he did at the and then i'll stop talking at the new york queer uh international arts festival performance festival I don't know if it's still running, but where he basically, he would get an artist fee of a thousand dollars. He would go on stage and then he would pay it out to the audience to do things in the performance with him. Um, 
And by the end of the night, he'd given away a thousand dollars. And we had been through this experience where the whole room was the show. And it was like, I was like, oh, you can also just do that. Uh, uh, here, I'll put it in the chat. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, I think that um, in terms of the, the nuts and bolts, uh, in terms of how that has manifested in our work, um, we often have some kind of a host character. So in I Love You So Much, Squeeze Me to Death, um, which, which lived in this kind of... Uh, ephemeral world that that had hints of like 1950s housewife uh to it um we had a character uh um who who performed as the host to the show and and at the top of the show had this monologue that sam wrote in which there are very clear not instructions but guidelines given to the audience saying like this might happen, this might happen. And then we also gave the audience an, an opt out. Uh, we used uh, Hawaiian lays um, and we said, you know, if you don't wanna be touched, you can wear these. And it, they were very bright, easy for the performers to see. Um, a really great way to just sort of choreograph consent into the performance or costume design consent into the performance. Um, and so uh, in casting, Sam, you played that role more as the sort of God mic, faceless God mic in the back, uh, guiding people through the interaction. Um, so in terms of people entering a space, we definitely always, or usually, maybe always, uh, have this moment of like, you enter the space and suddenly you're like, oh, this is the performance. And then there's sort of like a reorientation um, that I think is really helpful for, for grounding people. Um, and, and again, creating this sense of, of consent. Yeah. Morgan, were you fixing to say something there? I can be fixing to say <laughs> something. Um, yes, so two things. Ta uh, Sam was talking about um, stakes and um, give and take and not expecting things to be given to us as the performers without us giving something in return um which lends itself to as sam was also saying a sense of vulnerability in the room that is an acceptable amount of vulnerability and the way we have decided to get there is that our performers and and us as uh, as willing company we put our vulnerability into the room so that we established that there's a comfortability with that, um, which Litmus, I think, does it extremely well. And we are very conscious of that when, when making that work. So um, tune in for that one. <laughs> we're, we're very vulnerable in that one. Um, very. And, uh, and we're just uh, hoping, you know, every night that we, we get to connect with somebody else one-on-one -on -one in an intimate way and it's a, it's a beautiful experience. But um, so there's that, but also going into the, the warm welcome that we have in every single performance. And we do it a different way every time. Sometimes it's a direct address. Sometimes it's a little more um, abstract, but um, it's something that I've actually learned um, as a cuddle therapist is you create this atmosphere 
um, in in your space where you're having where you're going to meet your client and you you create an atmosphere of welcome and a, a sense of uh, comfortable vulnerability um, but the warm welcome is really important in establishing that uh, so just the psychology behind how to um, figure out each person's like um, communication language you know because it's it's touch or it's or it's this or it's that you know um, or it's just direct address with words. Um, so that science goes into our warm welcomes in our in our works as well. Um, seeing that there's, um, we try to do more than one way. So it's the um, we offer we offer the lays for for people that touch is not their comfortable form of communication, and we do the direct address um, for people that just want it to the point. This is what it said. Um, but we've tried it different ways just to see. Um, what connects with people the best and communicates our intentions the clearest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also depending on the show, it can be a little bit less warm. Like casting was a very confrontational introduction. Um, it was playful. It was, yes. you know. <laughs> well, actually, humor, humor is another thing that um, as I was writing these columns had a kind of aha moment with um, realizing that we often do use humor in, in the introductions or the, the sort of onboarding sections of our piece um, because it can be really, really helpful in terms of breaking through that, that moment of like, oh God, the performers are coming off the stage, <laughs> like kind of laughing at it or, um, winking at it, um, I think we found to be really helpful. I, I would say that it, the way I think of it is the immersive theater, if you're don't, if you're not prepped for it, is the most awkward situation possible because you have no literally oh social rules are off. What are the rules of this place? I don't know. Here come people at me. Everyone's looking. Am I the show now? Uh and so I think you just have to get ahead of that in some way. Um to give people permission to like not take it super seriously you, you can't be wrong and I, I get it you know like if you don't if you don't kind of get on a, the level with that first um you will have some people who never give themselves permission you'll see them the whole show kind of lurking and and they're not doing it because that's where they want to be they're doing it because they they didn't figure out a comfortable um way to get involved yeah, and we, we showcase that as well uh, with the performers because we're constantly turning on and off our performance. So you can see the human behind it as well. Um, we do it with the litmus and we do it with a lot of the other previous works. It's just, um, you know, here I'm going to perform for you for a second and then I'm going to turn it off and you're going to see the real person. So, and and giving giving the audience the option as well to give me your performative side or you can give me your real side because you've already seen both sides of me and you're going to see it repeatedly throughout the night. And so that's also giving the audience two different ways to interact, um, whichever feels safer for them too. Yeah, I think um, that idea of like changing social frames throughout a performance. I mean, one thing Titus, I remember him sharing with us one evening um, having, having worked for Disney and specifically on the Disney cruise lines, you know, bringing kids up into the performances in the evenings and the way that kind of shifts the frame of the performance where it's like, 
I, I think you, you mentioned there was one night where it was like pirate night Titus and like suddenly there's a pirate in Beauty and the Beast. I mean, if you just want to talk about that. Yeah, that, that was yeah. great. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously on Disney Cruise Line, uh, kids are a major um, part of the whole experience with Disney and uh, the clientele and everything. So when we do uh, the shows on the ships and stuff, we always have a show. There's always an element of the show that includes audience members um, and it's always usually kids in this matter. And we have this instance where we have on one of the rotations of our cruises, Pirate Night will end up being the same night as Beauty and the Beast. And in Beauty and the Beast, we have uh, during the transformation of uh, Chip, the little teacup from Beauty and the Beast uh, becomes, you know, a little boy out of it. We have uh, the puppet gets hidden away and the child comes up on the stage from the audience, but because it's pirate night, he'll come in and he'll have a big scar on his face and his eyes will be like Johnny Depp and he'll have a big wig on and he'll be a little pirate vest and he <laughs> comes sprinting onto the stage. Um, but yeah, it's just part of the audience participations and, and the excitement of it and the strangety and the oddity, like the audience loves it, but uh, the performers and everyone who works in the theater is just like, oh, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> embracing yeah. the embracing the uh the random yeah exactly mm -hmm. i that makes me think of like clown too and just i think another thing about immersive is you need to be really durable with tone like you just need like do you know what i mean like and, and I, I, by which i mean a good clown like eh, somebody coughs somebody does something weird and they just look right at like you can't bypass anything like whatever the audience is doing that energy's in the room and like you if you try to steamroll it like you're going to look like a schmuck mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and i think this kind of relates back to i think noah you brought up the sort of like plasticity of reacting to audiences um and i i think by including a little bit of humor in in everything we've done we've we've made more room for that elasticity um and also going back to what Morgan said in, in really centering vulnerability in a lot of the work we've done, we've also given a lot of uh, uh, more space, more flexibility to that elasticity, which is like really funny for me to like say out loud and acknowledge because I'm like, not like a super vulnerable person naturally. So it's, it's, it's very ironic to me that like, suddenly I'm making all this work that's like all about that. <laughs> Um, why don't we go ahead and, and, and crack into the, the, the final bit. Cause you know, there's, there's, there's a line here between this idea of giving people, uh, you know, you know, not just onboarding people, um, which I think we've, we've addressed in, in a really, you've addressed in a really interesting way. Uh, I think Sam's bit about, um, you know, just, just you know, finding other ways to like get people in into it and the vulnerability um is is really gonna stick with me for for quite some time there but there's a there is a line here between that and the next phase which is accessibility and sort of thinking about all of the issues around that right i i always come back there's there's a quote i love of the the religious philosopher james Carse that is you know those who must play cannot play but there's there's sort of a, a reverse of that. It's like, if you, if you can't play, then, then you really can't play, right? So and there are barriers to that. And I wonder if you can kind of crack into the approach, because I think it's something that as an entire culture, we're very aware of it right now. And it comes up so much more in 
no Siri, uh, <laughs> comes up a lot more in uh, in immersive because of the, the the fact that participation is table stakes. So yeah, yeah. I think the first thing that we always make sure of is that there's places to sit, and I, I mentioned this in in our in in the third column. Um, I mean, first of all, I've, I've seen a lot of immersive performance that is just standing performance in the round where, you know, people are, are, are labeling performances as immersive when in, in effect, they're essentially just performances where the audience cannot sit. Um, and I get very frustrated with that. Um, but then also, you know, even a performance that does physically activate the audience and does offer opportunities for participation, I do think it's important to give people the option to say no thank you. I mean, there, there are considerations in terms of, you know, whether, whether people are, are able to be on their feet for that long, um, whether they are, are comfortable being in a space where people are moving around them. And then there's just like the basic fact that like somebody maybe just came off like a 12 hour work shift where they were on their feet all day. Um, and so I, I think it's important to honor as much as you can, um, as much as you are aware of whatever possibilities audiences can be bringing into the room. And, and when you are honoring that, making sure that it's not just like, oh, there's like a little cluster of chairs that are all on top of each other where like you can go and sit in the corner and be like the bad audience member, um, but actually making it so that like, no, these these seats have good sight lines and maybe there's things that happen close to them that, you know, really um, prioritize these these patrons. Um, so I think I think that's one sort of primary concern in terms of accessibility that comes up a lot. Um, yeah, I'll let, I'll let someone else jump in. Uh, no, it's funny, you use the term uh, table stakes. I'd like to, uh, to take that metaphor one step further. The uh, having a seat at the table um, is such a literal thing sometimes in Corinne's work where uh, I've been sitting in the back and I see people like, you know, we get to a drink right at the bar and they have a seat at a table that happens to be in the performance space and they don't realize they just signed up for being like the first solo in the, you know, the piece. And it's funny because like you see this transformation of like comfort to like extreme, not discomfort, but just like, what have I done? (laughs) I just chose like this main spot, but like, yeah, but this seat at the table thing I think is a metaphor that's actually really important where people who are willing to, you know, like take a seat there or explore it, or maybe it was them trying to find a space. I don't know. Like, I think exploring the absolute boundaries of space has become a really important aspect of what we're doing. It's, it's something that I'm always thinking about in every concert that I do, uh, which is even when it has nothing to do with immersive, but just like, where are people sitting? Where do they gravitate toward? Like what's possible? And like really exploring that, I think has been just central to everything we've done with, with casting, with them, you know, reversing the idea of like the seating and the stage. And um, I don't know, yeah, like where people sit, where people stand, where people gravitate toward has become such a central aspect of the work that it's in almost everything. 
I think we'll see that um, the way people and their patterns within space within a space are going to change once we get back to live live in-person performances now too because it used to be how do we like how many people can we fit in this room and everybody feel like they've experienced the same thing right and then we shifted from there going into how many people can we feel like had a intimate experience with us virtually and how do we do that and how do we deal with that drastic distance space and a computer screen dividing us like how do we create that how do we manipulate that in a way that makes a meaningful experience for them um, and now we're going to go into something where all of us have a very different sense of what space is and what is enough and what is too little uh, than we had before and so now we're kind of gonna have to rework it again because um, you know like Titus's like scenic designs and stuff we're gonna have to like refigure out what are the movement patterns in a room and what are the places that are inviting now and what are the places that used to feel a little bit out of the way and removed but now they're like the prime spots you know <laughs> so it's uh, I think it's going to shift again and and well, it'll be a bit of a trial and error because I think just as a whole, um, as as a people, we are thinking about space very differently now. That was a bit of a tangent, not totally related, but I just saying that our our relationship with space as a whole has shifted a lot in the past two years. Oh, I don't even think that's that much of a tangent. I mean, we are the entire culture is fragmented in a way it never has been before and as people come back into spaces you know and you can you could see it all pandemic long people moving through spaces and having very different relationship to their own sense of personal space you know um that's definitely evolved over time but and it's even people have different directionality with it too you know some people were like super comfortable being close and then as things went on like they got farther apart and other people started just getting sloppier and, and more careless and you know i was having a conversation with a friend today and they were saying like oh they realized they're starting to have panic attacks in stores now and i was like oh yeah that was me back in june and july like i i, I got broken of that at a certain point but no one's in the same spot and and as we kind of find ourselves reforging our society like there's there's all these questions and i think a lot of we're gonna we're gonna see it play out in in the kind of spaces we all make or you yeah. all make. i just talk about them so um i mean i think another thing that you bring up noah in terms of like coming back from this pandemic and this was a topic that i had sort of like started to write about in the third column but then there's there was too much, um, is that, you know, um, because especially the work I make is so physical um, and because trauma is something that lives in the body, that is often something I'm thinking about. And so that was one of the reasons why we, you know, and I love you so much, squeeze me to death, offered lays for people to signal that like, no, no, please don't touch. Um, and I think that coming out of the pandemic, like a huge consideration for people making immersive work is going to be dealing with the collective trauma we have all been through. And that that collective trauma is tied into closeness and breath 
and being like physical, I think it's, it's going to be an incredible, incredibly challenging, um, element of accessibility that we have to think about. Um, so yeah, I don't have any answers yet, but it's like looming on the horizon. When Rachel's got something, so I'm going to ask her to, to pop on her, her video and, and, and come up here. Cause I think you know, we're, we're definitely in this space, uh, you know, all these questions are before us in a way they haven't been before and all the great unanswered questions of how do we do this uh, have just gotten way more complicated. So here is Rachel. Hello again. Yeah. Um, I guess I was just thinking with this idea of like reimagining or the way that we perceive and move through space being fundamentally different. Um, I guess if you have any thoughts on like, how does that also translate to how we perceive fellow audience members? Like I know when I'm going through stores or anywhere now, it's not just like the proximity I have to somebody else, but also like, are they wearing a mask? Like, what is their demeanor like? Are they gonna, do they have regard to other people's space? Like there's just so much, their features are so salient. Like there's so much attention to them. So I'm curious if you have thoughts, just, not just on physical space, but on uh, fellow audience members. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting consideration um, that I, I hadn't really thought of before, but one thing that comes to mind, um, so my sort of day job, I, I teach, I teach at the community college level. And so um, I have been teaching dance technique classes on Zoom for like over a year now. Um, and the, the loss of being in a space with people is, is really hard in a, in a sort of like environment that centers physicality. Um, it's so much harder for the one or two students who will put their cameras on during class um, to be engaged and to give it their fullest when we're all looking out onto like this black canvas. And so I think that like, if you were to extrapolate that into the world, into, into this sort of new reality we've all been living in where, um, in, a, in a sense, we're, we're kind of confronted by these blank canvases that are, are deeply, deeply linked to issues of, of health, of politics, um, of safety, of like, social signaling, like, are we on the same team kind of stuff? Like, I, I think that is really interesting and really challenging. Um, the work that we are uh, launching right now, and I'll actually, um, Noah, maybe I'll, I'll send you an email that you could send out to, to people who participated this evening, because we have two tickets left for our press preview, in, industry preview tomorrow, um, and they're free. Um, I think sort of, it, it's not addressing that question, but in some ways is, in that it's it's a performance for, for one performer and one audience member. And there's like this interactive experience that happens virtually. Um, that experience is also live streamed without sort of revealing anything personal about the participant. So, it's kind of this space for reciprocity between the performer and the participant. And then the live stream is, is a space for kind of 
witnessing without sort of fully being in on that exchange. So it's, it's kind of this idea of like, it's without it really being like a COVID piece, it's, it's, we're, we're kind of trying to, to play with this idea of catharsis, this idea of reciprocity, this idea with let's just hold space for each other. Um, and then by making it more public on the live stream, kind of inviting sort of community around that. Um, so that's sort of the closest I've come to tackling that question, I would say. But I, I appreciate you bringing it up, Sam. Yeah, no, I would say in a way, it seems like your development of this piece was deliberately to be like, well, I don't, we're at this midpoint, you know, we're at this liminal point and uh, what's something we can do right now that we're not gonna have people concerned about the COVID of it all, but can talk about the feeling of being in the situation. Um, Cause yeah, I think, you know, generally like if you're having to really tackle those COVID questions about like how to do everything safely or how to even deal with getting everyone's minds back in the right place, like you're too early, like you're kind of the guinea, guinea pig, you know, and like that experience for them will be about like, this was the first time I went out, you know, like I, I don't know that I want to be the one. <laughs> having to be that piece that was like not quite about this is much more about the world this pack well it, it's it's uh it's like what Corinne had said is like how do we create space make space for people make space for people that we can exist in with us um like the coexistence the reciprocity um the making space and um so we we have found a way to do that with with litness in a in a a virtual space where we both exist but um going forward and once we start maneuvering how to be in an actual physical space together it's still that's still going to be the theme that's going to ultimately uh, be the rule of thumb is like making space for each other um, i don't know how to explain that very well but um safe space safe zone <laughs> like and just like making the space a malleable place so it's flexible um and uh, can be shifted in a way that meets the needs of the room at the time and so i think it'll be less defined than it has been in the past literally with like set design and stuff <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That was not a good answer, but <laughs> no, it was great. Well, I want to, I want to thank you all. Cause I know you, you do have uh litmus coming up, uh, you know, tomorrow, it's tomorrow night um, for everyone. So those of you who are interested, so uh, those of you who are in the chat right now, if, you, if you're interested in coming through uh, that uh, drop a line and I'll make sure to, to ping it out to you. But can even, um, I'll, I'll bop the link in the chat uh, also so they can get like first steps. Even, even better, even <laughs> better. Um, I know I'm looking forward to, to catching in. And I know it's, 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 a, it's a lot to take like, you know, hour, hour 15 out of, out of uh, production time. So thank you all so much uh, for participating in the experiment with us tonight. Um, this is a preview for Litmus, but uh, I, I'm assuming that you're working towards uh, a more public-facing version of it uh, in in not too long. Do you have a little sense of the timeline here, or? Yeah, so um, Litmus is going to be running all summer, on and off. Um, 
we will have dates in June, uh, which we hope to announce tomorrow, but definitely by the end of the week. Um, so uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. It it will it'll we'll blast it on all the social media. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll also put our social media handles in here. Um, and 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 the willing company social media handles just came on. So mm -hmm. uh, if if you if you liked what you heard tonight, or if you're uh, checking this out, you know after seeing Litmus or after hearing about it, since we'll have this this will live on in video form, uh, follow along, and we'll make sure that those links are in. Um, that they're they're in wherever this is living in in, in after the fact. So uh, Corinne, Sam, Titus, Morgan, Alex, Hannah, thank you all so much. I'll stop the recording and I'll have you stick around for a moment. And for everyone who's in tonight, uh, thanks for joining us on the forum this evening. Once again, you can check the show notes for more information about the series and Willing Company. We'll have links in there, which will ultimately lead you to Litmus once that is available to the public. And thank you to all who attended the forum on Tuesday night. Uh, we will be having more of these going forward. We're going to try and tie uh, more of what we're doing all together uh, as we around the corner towards uh, episode 300, uh, which is a giant milestone for the podcast as a whole. We do have uh, other podcast episodes coming out this week. Uh, Patreon backers, of course, will be able to access the review crew recording uh, that happens every Wednesday night in our Discord. Anyone can access it as a live event, but the recordings are held in reserve for our Patreon backers, patreon.com slash if you want to hear the latest. This week's episode is going to include Todd Martins of the LA Times, our friend Juliet Bennett-Ryla, and David and Lisa Spira from Room Escape Artist. They're all our friends. I don't know why I signal... I don't write these. You know I don't write these. Okay, well, I don't write these now. I may write them in the future. Anyway, uh, also for the main episode this week, which I believe is episode 296, we're going to have uh, Paige Solomon and Claire Ciappelli from... Uh, elsewhere at the Madcap Motel. That's your Memorial Day listening. And we've got a couple more episodes, uh, well, one more episode already in CAD, another one that we're recording this week. So uh, it's a very good run here on the road to 300. And I can't wait for you all uh, to share with you what comes next. All right. Catch you later.